Welcome. My name is Papa Corbaden, and this is the In Our Hands podcast. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. The moment the light shines in a part of your supply chain where really you have no control or no idea what you're doing, can see the problems around them and want to do something about about those problems. Actually, so you can, can have a different degrees of knowledge and ownership in network. The maximum People degree are happy to recycle is because at the end of the day, it doesn't make too much difference to put your waste in the bin or the other. Are, are people willing to consume significantly less meat? Is the fact that authenticity is key. And I agree entirely with that. That's actually a very, a very sophisticated response. <laughs> um, it was okay. perfectly timed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> In this episode, I continue to talk with Professor Adu and Adam Asane about trust in brands, sustainability labels, and legitimacy in development work in Africa. Hope you enjoy it. Appreciate it too. Very good questions. Well, thank you. And thank you for organizing this podcast. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much. Should we trust in labels and brands? Or do we actually need sustainability reports? Professor? I think um, we are sort of consumed by brands. I think the, the culture has already emerged to some point where uh, brands make statements. Uh, and in certain in- instances, that's what we have or the only guide we have as to quality. So if you um, were to go into the cosmetic industry and you, you had the body shop brand, um, somehow you get a sense of reassurance of ethical sourcing and sort of fair trading. It's, it's just the way um, brands can be useful. But of course, um, sometimes brands do not necessarily play along those lines. Uh, Some brands often play to um, an entirely different kind of uh, mindset. So in general, therefore, a lot depends upon what you really need the brand for. So if you were looking for ethical behavior, you may And I mean may, because you cannot be so sure that it is ethical. So the brand's brand label will not tell you that. And from that perspective, the answer is no. You cannot trust brands to give you that. Uh, On other occasions, uh, brands will tell you levels of profitability. So a brand will tell you which company um, will deliver higher uh, profitability. Nothing to do with ethical uh, behavior. So again, if that's what you're looking for, you could use that as brand. But the bottom line is that then brands are very unstable source for making judgments on particular lines. So if your source of judgment is epic, then brands cannot give you that. So for that reason, no, you can't trust brands if you're doing that. In relation to the second question, so then do we really need um, sustainability reports? Well, sustainability reports are written internally. And they're often written by people who feel they have achieved something. Uh, The question is, unless we all have a fairly common format, a certain set of precise indices that we all report to, you can never have a very standard form of sustainability report. Um, Some will play up certain issues, some will play down uh, certain issues. However, um, despite the differences, they are very useful windows into what the company thinks of itself. You can often read between the lines or you can read 
the lines fairly literally to see where the company's emphasis are. And to that extent, in the absence of a most perfect sort of source of information, they are the only sort of information you can have for judging the character and, uh, and, and the emphasis and the priorities of the company. Um, and if the company itself um, emphasizes something less important, you can decide for yourself in your interpretation of these reports um, that it probably doesn't, as a consequence, um, prioritize some other subject. So they are very useful. So between brand labels and sustainability reports, I think the sustainability reports, imperfect as they are, can be a better source of uh, assessment of, of, of companies. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I think in the end, it's about really looking at the ecosystem uh, surround, around, you know, uh, impact measurement and, um, and, um, and in order to understand uh, what, what brands can be trusted for a certain period of time and on who's not and, and how to guide our, 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 our choices and decisions. But I think it's something that happened, you know, in every other field that, uh, uh, that are a little bit more I would say advanced and developed in terms of execution and systems. Like, you know, if you look at, you know, simply uh, investment, uh, you know, would, if you're an investor, would you trust the, the brand that you're thinking about investing in, you know, as the only source of information about whether you should do or not do that investment? Now answer is of course not. You know, there is a number of sources that you need, that, you, that you're gonna, um, that you're gonna look uh, and you're gonna research on before, uh, you know, before taking your decision. And I think, you know, and I think now, of course, what I think is clearly like this, you know, now in, in terms of uh, investment practice, you know, there is uh, a number of sources that anybody can, can access to, to the more simple, from the most simple to the most advanced, you know, in order to take that decision. The same thing should happen, you know, um, about, uh, about uh, sustainability uh, and social impact. And, uh, and, and so it, the, the question is the question of, uh, of how much the ecosystem is, is developed. In this case, brand can be part of the, a percentage of, of the source to take your decision. Sustainability reports can also another part. Then third party reports on sustainability practice, you know, should be the other part, you know, and so on and so forth. There's no, of course, like um, scientific answer to that, but I think it's uh, you know it's 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 a it's a system and that, and a number of dynamics that need to start happening you know in order in order to create um, you know again um, ecosystem in which everybody then can go in and apply his own sensitivity values in order to understand what is happening and take an informed decision. With so many sustainability uh, labels as well as consumers face different choices in their buying habits. Um, and I think, uh, Professor, I, I think you touched on it in your talk when you, when you came to Milan, but just the idea of having uh, the UN guiding principles that businesses can pay attention to or follow. And then you've got the, uh, the SDGs, which businesses can pay attention to or follow with a lot of uh, similarity between them, of course. But then you've got, um, I don't know, the Rainforest Alliance is doing their bit. You've got the ILO, uh, you've got ISOs, you've got, um, you know, so on, so on, so forth, so forth. Uh, 
do, do, do both of you feel, are there too many actors uh, in this space by way of standards and mechanisms or is it, is it healthy to see so many people trying to cover all these gaps and areas? It is very interesting because from, from different perspectives, from the perspective of say the companies, um, you do get the reaction in the world, there's just too many standards and too many things that we need to comply with. And then from the perspectives of civil society groups and advocacy groups, they take the view um, that too much meat doesn't spoil the broth, if you pardon the, the, the sort of uh, analogy. And so it, it's quite a confusing sort of debate about whether we have too much or whether we don't have enough. I'd like to look at it from a very simple angle, and the angle is the basic content, because what we tend to be arguing about is the labels and not the content. Because if you take a closer look at all the various standards that are being put out there, you find there's a very common denominator, and the common denominator is a, a, a sense of dignity in trade, a sense of dignity in the conduct of business. So the ISO 26000 says the same thing. The OECD guidelines on responsible business conduct says the same thing. The UNDPs will say pretty much the same thing. The differences are is, uh, uh, lie in whether they then recommend ways in which you do what is required. And, but that's a, a process issue. So my view about this is that I tend to lean closer towards the, the advocacy point, which is that too many of these cannot be a bad thing. But please take a closer look exactly at what it is that the particular standard defines and to see what value it adds to the very general idea that you must conduct business ethically, that you must conduct business with some kind of social responsibility. And then all of these different things say different, um, give you different advice as to how to achieve that. So I, I'm not so particularly concerned of how many there are. I'm much more concerned about whether the content itself is precise enough uh, for whoever is applying it, a company, a government, or a civil society group to apply it. And I think, you know, if you look fairly carefully, you can see that. Now, I can, we can talk just fairly differently about uh, some of these things. So if you look at the UN guiding principles, it's fairly... Um, basic message at the bottom of it. And the very basic message is that perhaps we've relied too much on government regulation to bring responsible business conduct. So perhaps businesses should now show a sense of responsibility. And that sense of responsibility should lie within the companies themselves undertaking due diligence as much as it takes, uh, human rights due diligence as much as we take our social and uh, political risk or financial risk. And if they did that, they will recognize in advance where the human rights risk will lie, be it with indigenous people, um, with consumers, with workers. And once they know these risks, they should take steps to mitigate or eradicate them. Now, the idea then is that if you did exactly that, then you'll be trading or you'll be close to trading ethically. And if you go to, um, say, uh, ISO standard, which set out what they think you need to do to gain the relevant ISO recognition, you find they pretty much are asking you to do something fairly similar. So in that sense, the format is different, but the outcome is exactly the same.
So it, it doesn't make any difference whether we have 10, 20, or 15, as long as the content aims for the same. They may have nuanced differences, but for me, if they tend to achieve the same thing, I'll be quite happy to have as many as there are. Um, I, you know, I, I really, you know, agree with what the professor said. First of all, also because he has a lot more experience than, than me in this in this aspect. I, you know, the only thing that I would like to add in this is that I think that there's no fear of having too many standards out there in in what has happened so far in terms of uh, trying to um, set a culture, you know, to to set a culture, set an agenda, just try to create an approach, make, you know, companies and consumers understand and becoming more aware about certain aspects. And I think for this, even in front of too many standards, uh, you know, I think that uh, we saw definitely some improvement, actually. Actually, I would say like incredible improvement compared to just a few years ago. You know, you just uh, look at that, uh, you know, again, the way millennial or generation Z, you know, react or the, the interest or the, the the, you know, the engagement that they have towards, towards these topics. At the same time, even if I, I don't think that is, a, that is definitely not a barrier to have too many standards in terms of culture setting, now I'm still wondering a little bit about this execution aspect in a sense that, you know, before I used to work with the UN, now I'm working closer to a company, uh, even if I'm working on a foundation, uh, on a foundation that is independent from the company, but we still have a lot of relation with the company. And I can see how, brands sometimes they just get lost in execution in who is doing what what i should choose which one we should follow uh who do i have the expertise to execute a instead of b or to choose a instead of b or b instead of c and and i think for that aspect is some of the some of the elements that we can improve and by having less standards and some of them are more recognized you know than others and more accepted than others that they become like the um the benchmark towards which everybody has to, um, you know, has to react to. I think that would that would help from an execution standpoint. So again, you know, just to summarize, I really think that from a cultural setting, having too many standards is not a problem. Actually, to a certain point, it really helps to to uh, even more to to set a certain culture regarding sustainability, human rights, and and social impact. In terms of execution, then I think that there is still a lot that can be improved so that uh, brands can, uh, can be more effective in, uh, in implementing some of, the, some, of the, some of the important action that now they, they, they understand that they are important, but they not necessarily have a practice to really make it happen in a, in a consistent way. Can I just add that I agree entirely with that? That's actually a very, a very sophisticated response, uh, and I agree completely with that. And so to support it and give you an interesting example, alongside what I just said, that most companies feel comfortable in particular standard setting contexts than in others. So to give you an example, the typical North American company is happy to work with the OECD than they are working with the United Nations. Um, it, it's purely cultural, it's, as, as, as Adam has said. Um, and to that extent, it is quite important that the OECD sort of speaks directly to the language that these companies 
um, sort of appreciate. And, and to that extent, if, if there was a sense in which the OECD focused largely on its uh, implementation processes, we will achieve a lot more. Having said that, if you look fairly carefully, what it is that the OECD says in its guidelines for multinational enterprises is exactly the same as the UN guiding principle. So, of course, there's no point trying to push the UN guiding principles down the throat of the companies because they're culturally not comfortable with it, but they're comfortable with the OECD. So, in that sense, encouraging the OECD to develop implementation mechanisms and for them affairs will probably be a far more effective way um, than just having them all out there. Uh, the last question I was going to ask, uh, and I guess it's a bit of a loaded one, so that's why I'm leaving it to last, is just uh, with all the talk of the different standards and uh, different consumer groups and stuff, a lot of the um, frameworks, uh, the, the sustainable development frameworks are kind of imposed or implemented in places where the strength of government or governance is weaker, and so there was a need to protect course, people who are doing business or exposed to the private sector. Africa keeps coming up um, in this area and in also in the world of um, sustainable development, uh, social impact as well. So my next question was going to be around who has the legitimacy or is there any, does anyone have the legitimacy uh, for doing the uh, social impact or um, development work in Africa of foreign actors going in there to, 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 to try and push things forward, so to speak? Well, I'm glad you began prefixes by saying this was a loaded question. It is a fairly loaded question. And the question, uh, the issue of legitimacy lies at the heart of capacity. Um, and it's no surprise that a good majority of this activity is in Africa. And we have to admit a certain sense of generosity in our culture, which allows when, when it does occur um, for external actors to take advantage of African communities. And that goes for the use of land because of the nature of our cultural use of land, being community land. Their understanding is that anybody who is part of the community can, can use it, but only on the understanding that nobody owns it and so on. But you can see how easy it is to abuse that. But we have a certain cultural generosity in that. There is also a completely different understanding of what we expect of people coming in and doing business. Um, in the expectation, culturally, in our minds, that if there is a member of the family who is wealthy. It follows that that member of the family will look after everybody else. This is essentially basic cultural uh, tenet. But then when you take it to the higher level where business comes in uh, to make money, it doesn't necessarily correspond that the business sees it. As that. So we have some very different cultural starting points for this. And so um, when we on our own sometimes receive um, uh, sort of foreign guests. We have all of these cultural inhibitions which then prevent us from, from benefiting. So that's one, one, one sort of handicap. The second handicap is typical that levels of poverty are much higher 
in our communities um, than in most places. The consequence is that whenever leadership emerges, um, leadership turns to want to get richer. And that is the basis of, core basis of corruption in our society, that our leaders let, let us down very badly um, in terms of making sure that our communities are protected. Now, with that kind of platform, the question then becomes one of do foreign agencies that come to try and point these out to us and steer our advocacy towards change, uh, bring value or not? In other words, is it, as you put it, too many of these agencies operating in there doing us any good? Well, in the context that I've just laid out, there are circumstances where some of these agencies are incredibly useful uh, because our culture will not move on left to us on our own unless some of these things get put on, on, on the table. Just to point out to us, that, well, you may not believe this, but this company that's working in your community doesn't understand that it owes you some kind of social responsibility. So we will have to ask them to take some responsibility. For us, this is something we wouldn't have known to ask. So they sort of help us to readjust uh, our culture in, in that sense. But having said that too, um, we have in our own cultures, ways of resolving um, sort of disagreements, tensions and disputes. And they've often been very sort of um, uh, uh, conciliatory in, in nature. Um, unfortunately, sometimes you get uh, the kind of intervention from advocacy groups that are not local, uh, that propose slightly more aggressive, slightly more interventionist litigation approach, or mechanisms that we don't, we wouldn't normally explore. Uh, that's not to say it makes it a bad process. There are, there are times and contexts for, for these things, but I would have preferred for local advocacy to embed local mechanisms and local style, and then make sure that at least they're made a little more efficient. And if they're not efficient, then to propose uh, new ways. So I'm not surprised. I'm not particularly um, unhappy with foreign agencies that come to advocate for change. I wish, though, that some of these agencies will take on board some local mechanisms and local circumstances that could be made better using the mechanism. Now, I don't know if this addresses the question you posed, um, but I sort of had this reflection in terms of um, commenting on um, foreign advocates. So if there's some bit of the question that I missed, I'll be quite happy to address it. Um, I think it, I think it, if I, I can speak to the questioner. Adama, please go for it. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a very, very difficult question in the sense that it can be approached for, for so many different, so many different ways. And um, the, the first thing that I thought of, you know, because the question of legitimacy uh, has always been very dear to me on a personal level, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it goes deep into my, you know, person, you know, into my family, you know, and, and also being, uh, you know, both uh, European uh, and African, you know, Italian and uh, Gambian, you know, and also Senegalese and, uh, and how to operate in the different worlds and with a different you know, somehow um, identities that that uh, that are instilled in me. So, uh, so so it is, it is 
it is a it is not only loaded it is a very complicated question to me um the first thing that i thought of and maybe it's connected to to some of my uh studies or previous experience it was connected to what where legitimacy come legitimacy come from and of course i'm not going to try to try to delve into you know into any type of historical legal uh <laughs> discourse especially in front of you professor you know because i might have i run the risk to say something extremely stupid i am not <laughs> no no i'm sure you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> but um you know but it, honestly at some point i was like okay how to address the, the question of legitimacy you know if you don't start addressing you know the question of a nation state and i'm like okay who has really legitimacy to do anything you know um outside outside the nation the nation state but then there is also the element of responsibility and and there is in this new ecosystem that is that is coming around you know there's a lot of uh, you know question that i have in my head and i'm thinking about uh you know great organizations you know for what i'm what for what i know like uh you know the big foundation now the bill and melinda gates foundation for example you know and many others but if i'm not wrong until a few years ago i don't know if it's still the same the bill and melinda gates foundation was the third biggest donor for public health in the world and that was after usaid and uh, and 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 dfid you know and and that create i mean that posed some questions about you know especially considering that uh, legally a foundation is a private you know entity you know it's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's very clear you know if tomorrow i mean it's, i know it's more complicated than that but if tomorrow bill gates or his board decide to move from one country to another one or dismantle their foundation or completely shade uh, you know shift focus you know this has an impact on 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 economies you know on large economies and um and so the element of legitimacy i think is strictly interrelated with the with the with the with the element of power and and of course when you get into the element of power there's there's an element of uh, of agenda and various interests that are not necessarily i don't want to get into like about any dark agenda you know that any type of agency might have but it's just a structural question that that comes to mind so in a way you know as imperfect as it is you know to to certain degrees some un agency you know when i was used to work for the un you know i felt it was probably the first time that i felt some kind of uh, legitimacy in the work that i was doing because you know even if it's in a very indirect and imperfect uh, structure you know there was you know the agency that I was part of it was partially you know controlled by some of the nation state that were part of it they were you know that there was some sort of super indirect connection with with the structure you know that has been built and and at the inter, at the international level when i was working for the un and now also as a foundation you know as a co-founder of a foundation it's it's a tricky question you know do i have legitimacy i don't know to be honest i have no idea you know um in the end of the day you know and i think there is where like part of my answer gets probably closer to to what the professor was saying is the fact that in the end is is about trying to figure out to create an effective dialogue and a and a space where you know the different level of powers and the lift of developers interest has at least like a venue in which there could be like a, a clear exchange and where there are clear mechanism where any type of uh, 
local sensitivity can be uh, embedded in your in your own strategy and in your own actions. I know it sounds very abstract, and and it, because in the end it's about uh, uh, you know it's about the players that are that are in the field to do to do certain to do certain works, and uh, and it's about the people who's there, you know. But at the same time, it's 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 a it's a very to me is a very concerning uh, concerning question that clearly I don't have an answer yet, <laughs> but I only have you know certain framework and and general sensitivity that that I'm trying to you know that I'm trying to apply every time uh, you know I, I work in a in a new initiative, and it's. Uh, and it's about, I think, at the end of the day, it's really about also figure out a way to, to be able to recognize and accept the fact that you can make mistake, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, but the point is that is to be able to to then enforce uh, strategy that uh, would allow you to um, to be more uh, sensitive about more mistakes and 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 be able to to improve uh, both. On a strategic level, on a management level, and execution level, in, in various ways. Um, but I agree, you know, it's not only a loaded question. It's I think it's a, it's a question that should remain in any healthy international relation environment. You know, the question should always remain, and it's not. I think it's about really trying to figure out the perfect answer, but it's about to keep the question at heart and keep the question in the mind and then every time try to exercise uh, a new level of, of, of experience and, and an always refined level of sensitivity in order to address the specific issue. What's the single most thing consumers can do to try and do something positive towards uh, African development? Sure. Thanks. Um, well, I think uh, keep Educating yourself and keep studying, um, you know, the different uh, your consumer behavior, and you know, and really start, you know, uh, a process of uh, critical, a critical thinking process around uh, our own habits as as consumers. You know, I think a lot already has been done in terms of awareness, uh, but it's a constant uh, exercise that we all need to do. And I think, you know. By doing so, you know, we will be able to just increase, you know, the average knowledge uh, that we have in terms of uh, behavior of, uh, of brands and understand also that it's not necessarily like a, a clear-cut field, you know. Uh, the, now there is a much more, there's a much higher level of awareness, but I think, you know, there is still like uh, this very superficial distinction between uh, uh, good and bad people, you know, and in some cases it's that clear, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, but um, but in many other many other cases, it's it's a much more nuanced field, and uh, and you know, and it requires it requires getting enough information. It requires changing our approach to her uh, in in terms of our consumer behavior and understanding that uh, you know um, there has to be an effective way to. Uh, to person knowledge in this, and little by little, you know, things will get more, uh, will, will get clearer, you know. But so, in the end of the day, the only message is mainly about, you know, knowledge, 
and start to establish an approach that, that brings into a path enough increased critical thinking behavior by each consumer. Thank you. On the very last question, I think uh, Adama sort of landed very heavily on knowledge, and I'm very happy to endorse it, but I want to add to knowledge capacity. Uh, develop your knowledge and develop your capacity. Essentially, consumers should really get to understand the economic landscape. The world economy is changing, so you really need to build your knowledge into how businesses all over the world are so fluid and able to move about and the impact they can make. In that context, you need to also get to understand your, your as in the consumer's rights and entitlements. Where do you sit in as a consumer? And also get to understand what it is you expect of the company in terms of its responsibility. Because if you don't, if you know your rights, but you don't know uh, the company's responsibilities, you won't be able to um, ask for your entitlement. So know your rights, know the company's responsibility, but also remember that all of this takes place within a certain political context. So you need to understand what the duties of your leaders and governments are, whether in Africa or whether in Europe, what these duties are, what are the duties of regulation, protection, cooperation, you need to know what you expect of your government. But when everything else fails, you must also know where your remedies lie. Do the remedies lie with the company? Do they lie with your government? Or do they lie with your judicial, local judicial mechanism to know exactly where your remedies lie? And above everything else, you should not sit still as a consumer. You must demonstrate your awareness. You must demonstrate your awareness of your rights, entitlements, you must demonstrate your understanding of the corporation's uh, responsibilities, and you must demonstrate your understanding of what you expect of government. In other words, let them know that you know. In that way, they will at least do the right thing. In the next episode, and third interlude of the series, you'll hear me taking questions from students in a UN Youth Workshop in Romania. Hope you'll join us. This has been an absolutely interesting and useful conversation for me, so I really appreciate the time. Thanks, man. It's a, it's a pleasure, honestly. Very interesting conversation. Thank you. 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 See you guys. Have a lovely Thanks, day. Bye. 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 Bye.